This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Greylorn by Keith Lawmer. This is Section 5. Chapter 2 I emerged into consciousness to find the pressure gone, but a red haze of pain remained. I lay on my back and saw men sitting on the floor around me. A blow from somewhere made my head ring. I tried to sit up. I couldn't make it. Then Kramer was beside me, slipping a needle into my arm. He looked pretty bad himself. His face was bandaged heavily, and one eye was purple. He spoke in a muffled voice through stiff jaws. His tone was deliberate. "'This will keep you conscious enough to answer a few questions,' he said. "'Now you're going to give me the combination to the locks, so we can call off the suicide run. Then maybe I'll doctor you up.' I didn't answer. "'The time for clambering up is over, you stupid braggart,' Kramer said. He raised his fist and drove a hard punch into my chest. I guess it was his shot that kept me conscious. I couldn't breathe for a while, until Kramer gave me a few whiffs of oxygen. I wonder if he was fool enough to think I might give up my ship. After a while my head cleared a little. I tried to say something. I got out a couple of croaks, and then found my voice. "'Kramer,' I said. He leaned over me. "'I'm listening,' he said. "'Take me to the lift. Leave me there alone. That's your only chance.' It seemed to me like a long speech, but nothing happened. Kramer went away, came back. He showed me a large scalpel from his medical kit. "'I'm going to start operating on your face. I'll make you into a museum freak. Maybe if you start talking soon enough I'll change my mind.' I could see the watch on his wrist. My mind worked very slowly. I had trouble getting any air into my lungs. We would intercept in one hour and ten minutes. It seemed simple to me. I had to get back to the bridge before we hit. I tried again. We only have an hour, I said. Kramer lost control. He jabbed the knife at my face, screeching through gritted teeth. I jerked my head aside far enough that the scalpel grated along my cheekbone, instead of slashing my mouth. I hardly felt it. "'We're not dying because you were a fool!' Kramer yelled. "'I've taken over. I've relieved you as unfit for command. Now open up their ship, or I'll slice you to ribbons!' He held the scalpel under my nose in a fist trembling with fury. The chrome-plated blade had a thin film of pink on it. I got my voice going again. "'I'm going to destroy the Mankji ship,' I said. "'Take me to the lift and leave me there.' I tried to add a few words, but had to stop and work on breathing again for a while. Kramer disappeared. I realized I was not fully in command of my senses. I was clamped in a padded claw. I wanted to roll over. I tried hard, and made it. I could hear Kramer talking, others answering, but it seemed too great an effort to listen to the words. 
I was lying on my face now, head almost against the wall. There was a black line in front of me, a door. My head cleared a bit. It must have been Kramer's shot working on me. I turned my head and saw Kramer standing now with half a dozen others, all talking at once. Apparently Kramer's display of uncontrolled temper had the others worried. They wanted me alive. Kramer didn't like anyone criticizing him. The argument was pretty violent. There was scuffling and shouts. I saw that I lay about twenty feet from the lift. Too far. The door before me, if I remembered the ship's layout, was a utility room, small and containing nothing but a waste-disposal hopper. But it did have a bolt on the inside like every other room on the ship. I didn't stop to think about it. I started trying to get up. If I'd thought I would have known that at the first move from me all seven of them would land on me at once. I concentrated on getting my hands under me to push me up. I heard a shout, and turning my head, saw Kramer swinging at someone. I went on with my project. Hands under my chest, I raised myself a little and got a knee up. I felt broken rib-ends grating, but felt no pain, just the padded claw. Then I was weaving on all fours. I looked up, spotted the latch on the door, and put everything I had into lunging at it. My finger hit it. The door swung in, and I fell on my face, but I was half in. Another lunge and I was past the door, kicking it shut as I lay on the floor, reaching for the lock control. Just as I flipped it with an extended finger, someone hit the door from outside, a second too late. It was dark, and I lay on my back on the floor, and felt strange short-circuited stabs of what would have been agonizing pain running through my chest and arm. I had a few minutes to rest now, before they blasted the door open. I hated to lose like this, not because we were beaten, but because we were giving up. My poor world, no longer fair and green, had found the strength to send us out as her last hope. But somewhere out here in the loneliness and distance we had lost our courage. Success was at our fingertips, if we could have found it. Instead, in panic and madness, we were destroying ourselves. My mind wandered. I imagined myself on the bridge, half believed I was there. I was resting on the O.D. bunk, and Clay was standing beside me. A long time seemed to pass. Then I remembered I was on the floor, bleeding internally, in a tiny room that would soon lose its door. But there was someone standing beside me. I didn't feel too disappointed at being beaten. I hadn't hoped for much more than a breather, anyway. I wondered why this fellow had abandoned his action station to hide there. The door was still shut. He must have been there all along, but I hadn't seen him when I came in. He stood over me, wearing greasy coveralls, and grinned down at me. He raised his hand. I was getting pretty indifferent to blows. I couldn't feel them. The hand went up. The man straightened, and held a fairly snappy salute. "'Sir,' he said, "'Spacer First Class Thomas.' I didn't feel like laughing or cheering or anything else. I just took it in as it came. "'At ease, Thomas,' I managed to say. "'Why aren't you at your duty station?' 
I went spinning off somewhere after that oration. Thomas was squatting beside me now. Captain, you're hurt, ain't you? I was wondering why you was down here laying down in my sposal station. A scratch, I said. I thought about it for a while. Thomas was doing something about my chest. This was Thomas's disposal station. Thomas owned it. I wondered if a fellow could make a living with such a small place way out here, with just an occasional tourist coming by. I wondered why I didn't send one of them for help. I needed help for some reason. Captain, I've been overhauling my converter units. I just came in. How long you been in here, Captain? Thomas was worried about something. I tried hard to think. I hadn't been here very long, just a few minutes. I had come here to rest. Then suddenly I was thinking clearly again. Whatever Thomas was, he was apparently on my side, or at least neutral. He didn't seem to be aware of the mutiny. I realized that he had bound my chest tightly with strips of shirt. It felt better. Well, "'What are you doing in here, Thomas?' I asked. "'Don't you know we're in action against a hostile ship?' Thomas looked surprised. "'This here's my action station, Captain,' he said. "'I'm a waste recovery technician, first class. I keep the recovery system operating.' "'You just stay in here?' I asked. "'No, sir,' Thomas said. "'I checked through the whole system. We got three main disposal points and lots of little ones, and I have to keep everything operating. Otherwise this ship would be in a bad way, Captain." "'How did you get in here?' I asked. I looked around the small room. There was only one door, and the gray bulk of the converter unit which broke down waste into their component elements for reuse nearly filled the tiny space. "'I come in through the duct, Captain,' Thomas said. "'I check the ducts every day. You know, Captain,' he said, shaking his head. "'There's some bad laid-out ducting in this here system. If I didn't keep after it, you'd be getting clogged ducts all the time. So I'd just go through the system and keep her clear.' From somewhere, hope began again. "'Where do these ducts lead?' I asked. I wondered how the man could ignore the mutiny going on around him. "'Well, sir, one leads to the mess, that's the big one. One leads to the wardroom.' and the other one leads up to the bridge. My God, I thought, the bridge. How big are they? I asked. Could I get through them? Oh, sure, Captain, Thomas said. You can get through them easy. But are you sure you feel like inspecting with them busted ribs? I was beginning to realize that Thomas was not precisely a genius. I can make it, I said. Captain, Thomas said diffidently. It ain't none of my business, but don't you think maybe I'd better get the doctor for you? Thomas, I said, maybe you don't know. There's a mutiny underway aboard this ship. The doctor is leading it. I want to get to the bridge in the worst way. Let's get started. Thomas looked very shocked. Captain, you mean you was hurt by somebody? I mean, you didn't have a fall or nothing? You was beat up? He stared at me with an expression of incredulous horror. "'That's about the size of it,' I said. I managed to sit up. Thomas jumped forward and helped me to my feet. Then I saw that he was crying. "'You can count on me, Captain,' he said. "'Just let me know who done it. 
Now feed him into my converter. I stood leaning against the wall, waiting for my head to stop spinning. Breathing was difficult, but if I kept it shallow I could manage. Thomas was opening a panel on the side of the converter unit. "'It's okay to go in, Cap'n,' he said. "'She ain't operatin'. The pull of the two-and-a-half G's seemed to bother him very little. I could barely stand under it, holding on. Thomas saw my wavering step and jumped to help me. He boosted me into the chamber of the converter and pointed out an opening near the top, about twelve by twenty-four inches. "'That there one is to the bridge, Cap'n,' he said. "'If you'll start in there, sir, I'll follow up.' I thrust head and shoulders into the opening. Inside it was smooth metal, with no handholds. I clawed at it, trying to get farther in. The pain stabbed at my chest. "'Captain, they're working on the door,' Thomas said. "'They've already been at it for a little while. We'd better get going.' "'You better give me a push, Thomas,' I said. My voice echoed hollowly down the duct. Thomas crowded into the chamber behind me, then, lifting my legs and pushing. I eased into the duct. The pain was not so bad now. "'Cap'n, you got to use a special kind of crawl to get through these here ducts,' Thomas said. "'You grip your hands together out in front of you, and then bend your elbows. When your elbows jam against the side of the duct, you pull forward.' I tried it. It was slow, but it worked. "'Cap'n,' Thomas said behind me, "'we got about seven minutes now to get up there.' I set the control on the converter to start up in ten minutes. I think we can make it okay, and ain't nobody else coming this way with the converter going. I locked the control panel so they can't shut her down. That news spurred me on. With the converter in operation, the first step in the cycle was the evacuation of the ducts to a near-perfect vacuum. When that happened, we would die instantly with ruptured lungs. Then our dead bodies would be sucked into the chamber and broken down into useful raw materials. I hurried. I tried to orient myself. The duct paralleled the corridor. It would continue in that direction for about fifteen feet, and would then turn upward, since the bridge was some fifteen feet above this level. I hitched along and felt the duct begin to trend upward. "'You'll have to get on your back here, Captain,' Thomas said. She widens out on the turn. I managed to twist over. Thomas was helping me by pushing at my feet. As I reached a near vertical position, I felt a metal rod under my hand. That was a relief. I had been expecting to have to go up the last stretch the way a mountain climber does a rock chimney, back against one wall and feet against the other. I hauled at the rod and felt another with my other hand. Below. Thomas boosted me. I groped up and got another, then another. The remaining slight slant of the duct helped. Finally my feet were on the rods. I clung, panting. The heat in the duct was terrific. Then I went on up. That was some shot Kramer had given me. Above I could see the end of the duct faintly in the light coming up through the open chamber door from the utility room. I remembered the location of the disposal slot on the bridge now. It had been installed in the small apartment containing a bunk and a tiny galley for the use of the duty officer during long watches on the bridge. I reached the top of the duct and pushed against the slot cover. 
it swung out easily. I could see the end of the chart table, and beyond, the dead radar screen. I reached through and heaved myself partly out. I nearly fainted at the stab from my ribs as my weight went on my chest. My head sang. The light from below suddenly went out. I heard a muffled clank. Then a hum began, echoing up the duct. "'She's closed and started cycling the air out, Cap'n,' Thomas said calmly. "'We got about half a minute.' I clamped my teeth together and heaved again. Below me Thomas waited quietly. He couldn't help me now. I got my hands flat against the bulkhead and thrust. The air was whistling around my face. Papers began to swirl off the chart table. I twisted my body frantically, kicking loose from the grip of the slot fighting the sucking pull of air. I fell to the floor inside the room, the slot cover slamming behind me. I staggered to my feet. I pried at the cover, but I couldn't open it against the vacuum. Then it budged, and Thomas's hand came through. The metal edge cut into it, blood started, but the cover was held open half an inch. I reached the chart table, almost falling over my leaden feet, seized a short permal square and levered the cover up. Once started, it went up easily. Thomas's face appeared, drawn and pale, eyes closed against the dust being whirled into his face. He got his arms through, heaved himself a little higher. I seized his arm and pulled. He scrambled through. I knocked the T-square out of the way and the cover snapped down. Then I slid to the floor, not exactly out, but needing a break pretty bad. Thomas brought bedding from the O.D. bunk and made me comfortable on the floor. "'Thomas,' I said, "'when I think of what the security inspectors who approve the plans for this arrangement are going to say when I call this little back door to their attention, it almost makes it worth the trouble.' "'Yes, sir,' Thomas said. He sprawled on the deck and looked around the bridge, staring at the unfamiliar screens, indicator dials, controls. From where I lay I could see the direct vision screen. I wasn't sure, but I thought the small bright object in the center of it might be our target. Thomas looked at the dead radar screen, then said, "'Cap'n, that there radar scope out of action?' "'It sure is, Thomas,' I said. Our unknown friends blew the works before they left us. I was surprised that he recognized a radar scope. "'Mind if I take a look at it, Cap'n?' he said. "'Go ahead,' I replied. I tried to explain the situation to Thomas. The elapsed time since we had started our pursuit was two hours and ten minutes. I wanted to close to no more than a twenty-mile gap before launching my missiles and I had better alert my interceptor missiles in case the Mankji hit first. Thomas had the cover off the radar panel and was probing around. He pulled a blackened card out of the interior of the panel. "'Looks like they overloaded the fuse,' Thomas said. "'Got any spares, Cap'n?' "'Right beside you in the cabinet,' I said. "'How do you know your way around a radar set, Thomas?' Thomas grinned. I used to be a radar technician third before I got into waste disposal, he said. I had to change specialties to sign on for this cruise. I had an idea there'd be an opening for Thomas a little higher up when this was over. 
I asked him to take a look at the televideo, too. I was beginning to realize that Thomas was not really simple. He was merely uncomplicated. "'Tube's blowed here, Captain,' he reported. "'Like as if you was to set her up to too high mag right near a sun, she was overloaded. I can fix her easy if we got the spares.' I didn't take time to try to figure that one out. I could feel the dizziness coming on again. "'Thomas,' I called. Let me know when we're at twenty miles from target. I wanted to tell him more, but I could feel consciousness draining away. Then, I managed, first aid kit, shot. I could still hear Thomas. I was flying away, whirling, but I could hear his voice. Captain, I could fire your missiles now if you was to want me to, he was saying. I struggled to speak. No, wait. I hoped he heard me. End of section.